begin reading in verse number 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse number 1. If you can find the, the first page of it, you found yourself there. The Word of God says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense of the confirmation and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, under the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time that you've given us to be together. Lord, we don't take it lightly. There's believers all over this world that are uh, living and suffering under oppressive regimes, totalitarianism, godlessness, communism, atheism. Uh, vicious and vileness, Lord, that oppresses and prevents them from being able to do exactly what we're doing here tonight, which is gathering together to worship. And Lord, we pray for them that would desire uh, to be in God's house and are providentially hindered that you'd bless them where they are, Lord, both in far foreign lands, but also our home folk, Lord, that due to sickness and other infirmities cannot be here. Lord, I pray that you'd help us that are here tonight have our hearts open to the truth of thy word that you may have your will in our lives. We'll be sure to thank you for it, Lord. We love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, really, you know, we, we could preach all of the verses that we've read tonight if we had time to do so, but I am uh, particularly interested in verses 9 and 10 and 11. Uh, listen to what the Word of God says. We'll read it again. Paul says, This I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. You know, each of the Pauline epistles carry with them certain distinct features. Uh, for instance, you can uh, read in the book of Galatians and Paul is dealing directly with the uh, impact of grace upon the situation of the believer in this dispensation that we're in and how that draws a distinction between the yoke that the uh, law put upon man. You could go to the book of Ephesians and Paul's dealing with those great spiritual truths of how uh, Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition and made of twain, meaning of Jews and Gentiles, one new man in Christ Jesus, and elevated mankind to a place of spirituality that was heretofore unattained. Uh, you could read in the books of First and Second Thessalonians and you'd find the theme to be the second coming of the Lord Jesus and the patience of the saints in light of that. But in most of the Pauline epistles, there is also some negative feature that is emphasized. Some uh, error, be it uh, doctrinal or practical, personal, uh, moral, that Paul deals with that has to be corrected. And we could go through and catalog each of them. But there are certain books, and, and you, could, you could maybe put the book of 1 Thessalonians in this, although there was a problem at that church, but 
Uh, Paul seems to draw a distinction between the genuine believers there and then uh, some that sought to subvert them from the outside. But certainly when you read the book of Philippians, you will find that there seems to be no predominant problem that Paul is dealing with. Now, maybe you can pick some things apart here and there and find some little things, but for the most part, it seems as though the book of Philippians is sort of a love letter between the Apostle Paul and this body of believers. It is him communicating to them his gratitude and appreciation for the way that they have been exemplary in their service to the Lord, their giving to the Lord, their financial support of the Lord's work, and also their their loyalty unto Him, that in the midst of His bonds and afflictions, in the midst of Him becoming a, you know, a criminal and an outcast in society and many churches turning their backs on Him, that the church at Philippi had stood strong and had maintained close ties with Him. And so when you read the book of Philippians, you don't really find a lot of correction taking place. But rather there's a lot of, of bragging on the Lord for what He's done in their life and there's a lot of of, uh, you know, just Paul expressing his gratitude. But I'm interested when I read in chapter number 1 because despite all of the good things that we could say about the church at Philippi, Paul is not without certain things that he is praying for concerning. Now here's the thought I want to draw to your attention uh, in that. You know, there may be some folks here that say, Preacher, I, I'm a mess. God has to fix a lot about me. And that's probably true. And God by His grace can do that. There may be other folks that say, you know, preacher, I've been saved a long time and my relationship with the Lord, I believe, is in good standing and I believe that I'm uh, doing uh, for the Lord what He expects out of me. And that may be true and I hope that is true of you and I hope it's true of every one of us. But no matter where we're at in our spiritual relationship with God, there is always a next step to be taken. There is always more we could be doing for God. There is always room for growth, as one might say. And the fact that the Apostle Paul begins this letter to the church at Philippi by saying there are some things that I want to see God do in your life, it tells me that no matter where I am at on that spiritual barometer, so to speak, or thermometer, uh, there's always room for me to grow and get closer to God. We've never just arrived. In fact, that will be one of the themes that Paul talks about in the uh, church uh, in the book of Philippians is that he, he'll, he'll go on to say, not that I have already attained, either we're already perfect, but I press forward. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So certainly one of the things that is a theme in the book of Philippians is this pressing forward, this consistent and persistent march towards greater spiritual depth and a greater walk with the Lord. We ought to all desire that. You know, this is a Wednesday night prayer meeting. I mean, most of the folks here are, are here. You want to be here. And you're here because you love the Lord. I heard somebody say one time, people that, uh, you know, show up on Sunday morning love the preacher. People that show up Sunday night love the church. And people that show up Wednesday night love the Lord. Uh, that sounds real good. But I know some of the folks that only show up on Sunday mornings. I'm not sure how they feel about me. Amen. But I certainly you're here tonight because you love the Lord. And, and you're here tonight because you desire for God to do something in your life. And with that thought in mind, I want us to look at what Paul prays for for them. And, and if I give a title to this message, not much of a title, but, but this is the title I would give, The Life That Paul Desired For Them. That Paul desired for them. That he wanted them to reach and attain a higher standing in their walk with God or a higher situation in their spirituality. And it is with that that Paul gives us Four things that he desired and prayed for 
for them. And these are four areas in our life, no matter whether you're a baby Christian that doesn't have any baggage, but you don't have much maturity, whether you are a Christian with many years behind you and you've got battle scars and maybe things that you've got to trust to the grace of God, but you also have depth and maturity, no matter where you're at, these are four things that we ought to all aspire to in our lives. Let's notice them together very quickly tonight and then we'll be done. Look with me at verse number nine. The Apostle Paul begins this way. He says, this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. I would say the first thing that Paul is praying for them about, he's praying for them that their hearts would stretch. I remember hearing my uh, mother make a statement one time, and, and not just one time, I guess I've heard her say it a hundred times, but particularly when I we were getting ready to, to have our second child, Schofield, and she said, you'll find when you have another child, you you look at your first child and think, how could I ever love a, another child as much as this? And when she said that, I thought, well, thanks, Mom. You know, I'm the third child. But but she said, you'll think, how could I ever love a child as much as I would love this one? And you think, how could I have another child? I mean, my you know, I, I, how will loving them not take away love from that firstborn child and so on and so forth? But she said, it's a funny thing. God gives a parent an elastic heart. Uh, you, you don't grow, you don't take love away from this one and love that one, but rather it's almost like your heart stretches to accommodate both of these children or however many you may have. You love all of them equally. They are all precious in their own ways and they all are a blessing to you distinctly in and of themselves. You know, I think this phenomenon is similar to what Paul is praying for for the church at Philippi. He's saying, I'm praying that your hearts would stretch. Uh, number one, that their love would be increasing. He says, I want it to abound yet more and more. I don't want you loving each other less. I want you loving each other more. You know, in these days that we live in where we are inundated with relationships and interactions, I mean, you stop and think about 200 years ago, how many people did the average person meet? Versus today, how many people do we cross paths with? If you were to go 200 years back and even look at the size of the average church, I mean, it would be paltry compared to the size of many churches today. The fact is we're interacting with more and more people today than we ever have before. And if you're a part of a New Testament church, you're going to interact with a lot of people. There'll be people that pass through. There'll be, you know, somebody said one time a church is like a Greyhound bus station. Somebody's always getting on. Somebody's always getting off. There'll be people that you meet that enter your life for a short while. And sometimes it is easy because of that dynamic to sort of insulate ourselves away and hold ourselves at a distance away from brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Paul, in speaking about this, I don't think he's necessarily saying you should not love sinners, but I think the context here is that of loving saints, loving people within the local body. And he's saying, my desire is not that you would withdraw yourself, pull yourself away and learn how to guard yourself, but rather that you would just love each other more and more and more. Sometimes it's easy to grow afraid to open your heart to people. Uh, especially if you've spent any time around the house of God and, 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 you know, we've got some, some long timers, some lifers here. People been here longer than I've been here. And some of you have been here twice as long as I have been here. And in that time, you've seen a lot of people pass through. And it's easy sometimes to just look at people and think, well, that's just somebody else. I'm going to put them on probation for a few years, find out if they'll stick around before I'll open my heart to them. But you know, that ought not be the spirit and disposition of local New Testament church. It ought to be uh, that God can give us grace enough to love more and more and more. You say, preacher, I'll get burnt. Yeah, probably, sometimes. 
But that's what the grace of God is for. The grace of God can soothe and salve that that hurt. So, you know, I, I, I jotted this down in my notes. Grace gives breadth to our love. You say, preacher, how can I love uh, people abundantly? Well, you love them with the, cry, the love that Christ loved you with. You do not view them uh, merely as entities unto themselves, but rather as the embodiment of the love of Christ, of the ambition and desire of Christ. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, you love them because Christ loves them. You say, preacher, they're not always lovely. No, I know, you're not, and I'm not, none of us are. But God didn't wait until we were lovely to love us. He loved us when we were unlovable. So he, he prays for them that their love would be increasing. Number two, that their love would be informed. He says, this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. And then he says, in knowledge. Now that's interesting. You know, some people are easier to love the less you know them. In fact, probably most people. I heard a preacher say one time, don't get to know me, the better you get to know me, the less you'll like me. And I can say a hearty amen to that. Uh, the fact of the matter is, some people are easier to love the less you know them. Some people, once you uh, sort of bulldoze through all of the unpleasantries of life, you find that you love them more the more that you know them. But uh, a great many people, uh, when you keep superficially in their life, it's easier to love them. But that's not how God says we're to love people. He says we're to love them in knowledge. Now, what kind of knowledge is this? It could be a lot of things. It could be knowledge of God, who He is. It could be knowledge of the grace of God and what it's done in our life. But I don't really think there's any reason to complicate the text. I think when he's talking about knowledge, he's talking about knowledge of those people. And, you know, I, I thought about this. Knowledge, if grace gives breadth to our love, knowledge gives depth to our love. The more that you know someone, the more meaningful your love of them is. Those of you that have been married for, you know, more than a few minutes, you know this to be true. That the love that you have for your spouse, is it that puppy love? No, the puppy done died a long time ago. It's not that puppy love anymore. But there is a depth that resides in it. Sometimes it can be comfortable and, and familiar, and sometimes it can be frustrating. And yet you found it resilient despite all of those things. Well, where'd that come from? It came from knowledge. You see, anything that is not tested is never proven. Anything that, is, that, that lives in, a, in an environment of ease and convenience and leisure always grows weaker and not stronger. And so the better that we know people, you say, preacher, it's going to be harder to love them the better I know them. Yeah, it is. And when you love them, despite it being harder, you'll find that it's a richer love. Uh, we're to love them according to knowledge. You know, uh, the book First Peter tells husbands we're, we're to dwell with our wives according to knowledge. My pastor used to like that counsel. He used to say, be smart about how you interact with your spouse. and There's some truth to that for sure, but I think what God's saying here is not that we put on blinders and pretend that people are perfect. Uh, if we do that, all we do is weaken the love that we have for them. Now, we can go ahead and be honest about people's problems. Uh, we've got problems. I do, you do, everybody does. People love me in spite of my problems. They don't love me because of my problems. Uh, they love me in spite of my problems. And they love you in spite of your problems. And that gives depth to the love that we have. So that's what he's, he's not praying that they would have a blind puppy love that, that exists simply because you only see each other on your best behavior, but rather that this be an informed love. Number three, he's praying that their love would be insightful. He says, this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now, I think that's interesting because it's not speaking of judgment in the sense of passing judgment 
or condemnation upon a person necessarily. But rather we could probably use this word alongside it, discretion or discernment. So what he's saying is I do not want you to have blinders on. But he's saying in your relationship with other believers, you need to have discernment. Now, I I wrote this down. Judgment, if grace gives breadth to our love and knowledge gives depth to our love, judgment gives strength to our love. It makes our love resilient. Now, why is that? Well, because it provides two things. One, judgment makes our love prudent. Prudent. There are some people that you'll find uh, that you have to, boy, how do I say this correctly? Lord, Holy Ghost, help me say this correctly. Uh, there are times when the way that you love individuals, you may not be helping them in the way that you're loving them. There are times, you ever heard the word enabling? There are times you can enable someone. There are times if you don't have discernment in your relationship with someone, you can do them more harm than you are doing good. You can do yourself more harm than you are doing good. God does not ask us to merely be the the doormat or the ATM or the emotional dumpster of every person. Sometimes we're not helping them by doing that. Sometimes we're only hurting them and hurting ourselves. And you know what I've found? When we allow ourselves to yield to that sort of indiscriminate love, it does not last very long. It contains no boundaries. And because it contains no boundaries, here's what it does. It burns bright and hot and then it fizzles out. It burns bridges. It destroys relationships. Sometimes we have to be prudent in our relationship with one another. We have to recognize that sometimes yielding or relenting, doing what someone may even believe and pledge and beg and swear it's what they want and need might be more destructive and harmful for them and for us than where we do nothing at all. But then number two, I thought about this. It not only makes it prudent, it makes it powerful. Have you ever thought for a moment, you know, God, love is an attribute. That's what it is. Love is an attribute. Love is one of God's attributes. Uh, God, the Bible tells us that God is love. It doesn't say love is God. The world wants us to think love is God, meaning we define love and then say God ought to fit in this mold. But rather, God is love, meaning how God treats people is loving. Now, that does not always mean we view it as love. It doesn't always fit our definition of love. But it means that every way in which God interacts with humanity is motivated out of love. Now, love sometimes has competing interests. There might be times, uh, one, one preacher said it this way, that, uh, you know, a shepherd, he, he loves sheep, so he hates wolves. A farmer loves a crop, so he hates weeds, you know. Uh, and you and I, we love our family. We don't lock our doors at night because we hate the world. We lock our doors because we love who's within. Sometimes love has competing interests. But in God manifesting pure and perfect love, you know what we found? We find that He, in a utilitarian way, He utilized love. He took the love that He had within His heart to humanity And he used that to make humanity better than what humanity could have been on its own. Now, how did he do that? Well, he gave his son on the cross of Calvary. God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, was that merely a great manifestation of love? No, it was a ministration of love. You say, what's the difference? Well, it's one thing to say, here here is a great expression of my love. But it's another thing to take that love and use it to elevate the situation of someone else. 
That's something that uh, husbands that are breadwinners and maybe wives, you might be breadwinners in your home, but those of us that labor, we, we do that. It's a manifestation of our love, but it's not just a manifestation of our love. It's a ministration of it. Why? We want our families to be able to live comfortable lives. I could go to the bank and withdraw every penny I've got and go buy a nine foot tall teddy bear and a, and a dumpster truck full of, uh, you know, uh, chocolate and, and, and flowers and this and that and all these different things. I could, I could blow every penny that I've got and bring it home and dump it out in the driveway and I'd say, honey, look how much I love you. And she'd say, uh, where'd you, where'd you get all this? I'd say, I blew every penny we've got on it. And she'd look at me and she'd say, well, honey, I appreciate that, but you know we kind of need to eat this week, right? You know we have a mortgage we need to pay, right? You know we have a car payment we need to pay. You know we have utilities we need to pay. But I'd say it's a manifestation of my love. And that's all it would be. When I take that paycheck and put it in the bank and, and make a account and allowances for bills and responsibilities that we have, yes, that is a manifestation of love, but it's more than that. It's a ministration of love. I'm taking the love that I have and utilizing it to minister to them. That's what God did for you and I. Have you ever thought about the fact that the way we love other people, we ought to love them that way? Uh, in other words, it ought not merely be a self-serving ambition and desire to have the effusive praise of other people, the acknowledgement from them that, hey, we love them, but rather that how we love them ought to be tailored and curated and designed to help elevate their situation and help them grow in the Lord. This is the kind of love that Paul was praying for them to have. Number two, I want you to notice, i got to hurry. I'd love to just stay there and preach, and we probably could, but I want to get through the message tonight. Number two, I want you to notice verse 10. The first thing, he, he prays that their love would abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Number two, he prays that ye may approve things that are excellent. So the first thing he prays for them is that their hearts would stretch. The second thing he prays for them is that they would have high standards in their life. Now, it's funny, in, in this day in which society is drunk on class warfare, and that's what you're seeing unfold in society around you right now. Society is drunk on class warfare. Uh, we have learned to uh, vilify the idea of high standards. And yet we all have high standards for certain things. Uh, I, I've got sitting over by my chair a bottle of water. It's crystal clear. It's good as far as I know. I, 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 I don't think I've let it out of my sight. Hopefully nobody spit in it. But I, I want that water. Now, I could go down here to Victor Ash Park and scoop a big old uh, pitcher of water out of the pond there, but I don't do that because I don't want to drink that water, right? I want to drink good, clean, safe water. What is that? That's a high standard. I'm not just going to drink anything. I've got a high standard. Uh, I, we're not going to talk about food because we'd all fall under conviction. But suffice it to say that high standards are not a bad thing in Hey, listen, you, you men and, and you mamas that have daughters, you got high, you want them to have high standards. You don't want them marrying some bum. And I, and I hope those of us that have boys, I hope we teach them to have just as high standards. Uh, they don't want to marry someone that they have to regret. High standards are an appropriate thing. Now, that does not mean that our high standards should lead to a high-mindedness. doesn't mean we ought to be heady and high-minded and prideful. But it is appropriate to desire and long for the best in things. Now, Somebody's going to say, okay, preacher, you're saying we ought to have expensive tastes. No, I'm not talking about temporal things, and neither is Paul. Because he uses this word, it's the word excellent. 
Now the word excellent means to excel past all other things. He's going to go on to speak about their spiritual walk with God. But he's not speaking of temporal things here. He's talking about spiritual things. And he's saying, my prayer for you is that you would have high spiritual standards. Let me say that too many believers in these days are uh, are settling for second class Christianity. Mediocrity. We have lowered our standards. And I listen, I'm not just talking about the things you wear. I'm not just talking about music and this and that. And, and there's much could be said about that. Certainly, I think if we have high spiritual standards, it will manifest in that way amongst many others. But I'm talking about committing ourselves to wanting God's best for our life. You see, when he speaks of approving things that are excellent, number one, this speaks to our desire. To approve of certain things. What are we setting our sights on? I, I jotted this phrase down. Accepting versus approving. Now, we are all realists, I hope. I think that's appropriate. I, well, I would say this. We shouldn't be a pessimist or an optimist or even a realist. We should be a biblicist. Amen. Uh, in other words, our realism should be, ta- uh, should, should be, uh, tinted by biblical worldview and, and should frame it. But certainly we all understand that things are not always going to work out the way we anticipate them in life. And there are a myriad of reasons for that. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we need to understand that we can't rely on such paltry excuses as we use amongst other things. Uh, you might wish you had a bigger house, but you can't because you've got you got bills to pay and you can't afford it and the housing market's crazy. You you might wish you had. I, I've been looking for a truck and wanting to buy a truck lately. I, I don't think God's against me wanting to buy a pickup truck. Uh, it sure feels like he is right now if you check truck prices. But, but, but I don't feel like he's against me wanting to do those things. But there are all kinds of reasons and excuses why that may not happen. And I have accepted that. But when we're talking about spiritual things, talking about spiritual things, what the Bible says about our spiritual resources, that God in Christ Jesus has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. In other words, in our life, we have everything at our disposal that we need to excel in our spiritual development. If that's the case, you know what? We ought to desire to be as best as we possibly can be for the Lord Jesus. We too often just settle for whatever we are instead of striving to be more like Him. But not only that, it speaks to our determination uh, that you may approve things that are excellent. Uh, How far are you going to develop before you stop developing? How far are you going to develop before you stop developing? Have you got a place in your mind that you say, well, I want to be this caliber of Christian? And if you ever attain that, you're just going to sit back on your laurels? Now, most people would say, preacher, I don't feel that way. And yet the sad reality is they do feel that way and they've already reached it because they've ceased growing, they've ceased developing, and they're unbothered by it. They may have never stopped and said, this is where I want to get and no far. But somewhere along the line, they sat back and said, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm all right the way that I am. And what happened is they let their determination slip away. They quit striving for something greater. So he prays that they would have high standards. Number three, look at the rest of the verse. He says that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. So he prays that their heart would stretch. He prays they would have high standards. Number three, he prays that they would have a holy sincerity. He says, I want you to be sincere. Now, why is that so paramount? Because without sincerity, God can't deal with us. God won't help you and I be a hypocrite. He won't play along with our feigned spirituality. Now, 
God is not afraid of our brokenness. He can deal with brokenness. God is not afraid of our baggage. He can deal with baggage. God is not afraid of our, uh, of our limitations. He can deal with limitations. But what He cannot deal with is our hypocrisy. If we're not willing to be sincere, God can't deal with us. Because if He dealt with us in insincerity, He would be endorsing and enabling our hypocrisy. So if God's going to deal with us, we got to get sincere with Him. We've got to be honest with Him. We got to quit quit playing games. We we got to take off the the spiritual mask, and we've got to be willing to be honest with God. Now, what does that produce? Well, two things here. One, notice the protection of sincerity. He says this that you may be sincere and without offense. Now, if you if you study that carefully, what that phrase means without offense, it doesn't mean you're never going to make a mistake. But it speaks to the idea, only three times it's used in the King James Bible, and every time it deals with the idea of something that becomes a besetting thing in a person's life, something that mars them for the rest of their life. In other words, let me say it this way. Probably none of us can go even a day without doing something wrong. But every one of us can go our whole lives without having to have one of those episodes where we get out, get messed up, get broke down, and God's got to come find us in the uh, you know waste-howling wilderness. Now, if you've already had that occasion like that, you say, well, what should I do, preacher? Well, start being sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Start where you're at and move forward. But we need to understand that the standard in our life, and, and sometimes we use that as a bit of a as a bit of a misdirect. We say, well, you know, preacher, we're all sinners, we all mess up. Yeah, I know that. But that doesn't mean that your life has to be stained by some period of time of disobedience and rebellion against God. If it already has been, put it under the blood and move forward and pledge that from this day forward there won't be another one. But if you've never had a moment like that or a season like that in your life, man, praise God and guard it carefully. Guard it carefully. Uh, sincerity provides a protection. Uh, listen, those moments, those moments of offense, they spring up under the guise of hypocrisy. How does a person get that far out? Well, they didn't get that far out all at once. I'm talking about how do people get all messed up and out of church and I ain't been in church in 10, 15, 20 years and life's a mess and everything's to pieces when one time they sang in the choir or they sang with the youth group and they, they went to church and they's living for God. And people say, how'd that happen so quick? It didn't happen so quick. It happened in here a long time before it happened out here. You say, but preacher, how come they didn't get no help? Because they was too busy maintaining that facade. They weren't sincere. You see, where there's hypocrisy, there is room for disobedience to grow. We all disobey God. Why doesn't it get worse? Because hopefully we're all sincere enough that once the Holy Ghost smites our hearts, we say, you know what, Lord, I ain't gonna, I'm not going to lie about this. I'm going to be honest. You're right, Lord. I've disobeyed. I've done what's wrong. And I'm not going to go out and play the fool in front of a bunch of people and put on and pretend to be something I'm not. I'm not going to do that because it wouldn't honor the Lord. You see, sincerity protects. But then notice the perseverance of sincerity. He says that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now, I thought this was interesting. He does not pray that they... Uh, that uh, how do I say this right? The emphasis here is on the sincerity. Everything flows out from the sincerity. If they are sincere, it will enable them to be without offense. And without offense till the day of Christ. You know how people live faithful lives? Through daily faithfulness. You look at somebody that they've been in it in the long haul. They've lived for God 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. 
and and they've been they've been living for God and they have this great wonderful testimony. And you say, preacher, how'd they do that? They did it one day at a time, just like you and I did. Preacher, didn't they make mistakes? Sure, they did. But because they were sincere, they got it right with God before it could metastasize into something worse in their life spiritually, and that kept them on a right track. I remember hearing a story back to this about a pilot that uh, was sharing with they, they were I think it was a preacher flying on a plane was actually how the story goes and uh, he was talking to the pilot afterwards they flew through a really bad storm and had a lot of turbulence and after they landed he he was talking with the pilot and he said you know that's crazy that we went through that storm and the pilot said yeah it was really bad he said do you know that in that in that storm we were in a constant state of course correction and the preacher said well what do you mean he said well We were flying blind in that storm. We couldn't see anything, so we were flying by our instruments. And the computers would watch the the plotted course that our plane was supposed to go on. And the wind was so fierce and the storm was so bad that it was constantly being pushed off to the side. And so the computer would make constant, minute adjustments to the course to get it back on track. In other words, he was saying that they didn't just fly and let it go and land wherever they landed but rather that the autopilot made constant small course corrections to keep them on the right path. That's how they reached their destination flying blind in the midst of this storm. And I thought, you know, how appropriate that is for the Christian life. Preacher, how do people take off here as a, as a, as a six-year-old child or an eight-year-old child or a 12-year-old child, give their life to Christ at a, at a vacation Bible school at a church camp, and how do they land that plane here uh, 80 years later still living for God? They, they lived in a constant state of course correction. It's not that the winds of life didn't blow them off path like they do you, like they do me. It's not that they didn't make mistakes and sin. They did, just like I do, just like you do. But when they did, because they were sincere with God, were not content to play the hypocrite. When that happened, they went and did a little course correction. They immediately stopped, went to God and said, You know, Lord, that was wrong with me. I'm sorry. God, please forgive me. Help me cleanse this from my life. And that constant course correction kept them on the right path. So he prays for them that they would have a holy sincerity. Finally, and I'm done tonight, uh, notice what he says in verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. So he prays for them that their hearts would stretch. He prays that they would have high standards. He prayed that they would have a holy sincerity. And finally, he prays that they would have a heavenly spirituality. Notice the language very carefully. He distinguishes between righteousness and the fruits of righteousness. We think of righteousness as the fruits of righteousness. We think of them one and the same. But in the biblical worldview, the righteousness is its own entity. The good works that extend from that righteousness are a separate thing. Now you say, preacher, why is that distinction made? Well, because he's going to say here in a moment, which are by Jesus Christ. The righteousness is not our own righteousness. Rather, it is His righteousness that is lived through us. And then the actual things we do, the good works that we do, the the righteous things that we do, those are the fruits of righteousness. But it is never at any time our righteousness. It's always His righteousness. But I'll ask you this question. What kind of fruit do you have in your life? Do you have the fruits of righteousness? He does not say having the fruits of righteousness. He says being filled with the fruits of righteousness. In other words, he's saying, I'm praying that your life is saturated by serving God. Sometimes we get accused around here and around a lot of churches. You'll hear people say, man, they've just always got something going on. They've just got too much going on. 
I've said in the past, I want so much going on at our church that no one person could be at all of it. Not me, not you, not anybody. Now that's not busyness simply for the sake of busyness. There's much to do for Jesus Christ. But I would say this, if our life is going to be loaded down, if our life is going to be saturated, let it be saturated with the things of God. Let it not be saturated with the distractions of this world. Let it be saturated with the things of God. We ought to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Some of us, uh, you know, we need a fill up. And I'm not talking about we need to be born again. I'm not talking about we need even necessarily to rededicate. I'm talking about we need to recognize that our lives ought to be producing something for the Lord Jesus Christ. So I see the fruit of righteousness. But then he, he very quickly points out, and you could say it a couple ways. I, I jotted down the fountain of righteousness, or you could maybe say the force of righteousness, but we could just say it this way. Where does this righteousness come from? They are by Jesus Christ. That's what it says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. In other words, how do we do that, preacher? Uh, how do we do that? Do we do it by trying real hard? No, that's not how we do it. Do we do it by striving? You know, that, that's a common theme in a lot of churches is we got to strive, we got to strive, we got to strive, we got to work, we got to work, we got to work. But that's not what I find in the Word of God. What I find in the Word of God is that the work that we do is the work that God is doing in us and through us that produces the good works that we do. I'm not going to read it because time would fail me, but you could read in Ephesians chapter 2 like we did Sunday morning about how that God has saved us and elevated us to heavenly places in Christ Jesus, uh, how that by grace we are saved, not of works lest any man should boast. And yet then Paul turns around and says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which we were before ordained to walk therein. So in other words, it's not so much that we are working, it is that He is working through us. We are His workmanship. Now what does that suggest to us? Well, it suggests that He will do in our lives what needs to be done. We need only yield to Him to allow it to take place. I'm just going to spit it out. Some of you say, preacher, I wish you would. I've been waiting 40 minutes for you to, but... I'll just go ahead and spit it out. It is through surrendering to the Lord, yielding to Him, and letting Him have His way in our life. That does not bespeak idleness. Because many times God's going to tell you to do something. It doesn't imply a lack of activity or motion. But rather what it suggests to us is that the way that we be the Christian that God desires for us is not through willing or trying to concoct in our mind what a Christian life should look like and emulate that. Rather, it's by obedience to the Holy Spirit as He applies the truth of the Word of God in our life and guides and directs us. It is the righteousness of Christ living through us. That produces the fruits of righteousness. Whereby it is always His righteousness, it's not our righteousness. And what's the focus of righteousness? Look at the end of the verse here. It says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. He says about the church at Philippi, this is how I want your spirituality to look. I want it to be saturated. I want it to be abundant with serving God. I don't want you to be uh, backseat Christians. I don't want you to shift into neutral or put it on the back burner or whatever colloquialism we might use. He says, I want you going full steam ahead. I want your life saturated. But I don't want you to be saturated with self. Merely with you trying to uh, emulate what you think a Christian ought to be. Rather, I want you to live in constant obedience to God. If you live in obedience to God, God will give you plenty to do. Uh, there, Most of the people that complain of not having enough to do uh, have plenty if they'd obey the Lord to do in the first place. God will keep you busy if you'll yield to Him. 
But why do we do all that? Well, do we do it because people notice and and appreciate us? Do we do it because uh, it reaches people with the gospel and saves them? Do we do it because it might build our church and, and make it greater? No. The reason we do all those things is simple. We do it under the glory and praise of God. We do it because He is pleased with us. Sometimes you're not always going to see a direct correlation between your labor for the Lord and what you think ought to be the reward of it. Sometimes you're going to live for the Lord, you're going to labor for the Lord, you're going to serve the Lord, and you're not going to see the return on your investment that you thought you would. And in those moments, if your focus is wrong, you'll get discouraged. Christ taught us this uh, explicitly in John chapter number 4. Do you remember whenever the disciples come to Him and He's been talking to the woman at the well and and uh, they had gone into town to buy some food because they didn't have nothing to eat and so they come back with some whoppers in tow or whatever and they come and, and talk to the Lord and they say, you know, uh, they ask Him about why He's talking to this woman at the well and uh, He looks at Him and He says this, uh, I have meat to eat that you know not of. They say, Master, hast thou not eaten? They're, they're you know, they're they're... Mother hinting him is basically what they're doing. Uh, they're marming him. And, you know, they're saying, haven't you eaten something? Boy, you look peaked, Lord. Haven't you eaten something? And he says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they start looking around and saying, well, who brought him something to eat? And Christ looks at him and says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. What he's saying is the thing that sustains me is not how I fuel and feed this physical body. The thing that sustains me is how I fuel and feed the new man and how I serve the Lord. But in that statement, he reveals something fascinating. He doesn't say my meat is to reach a lot of people. He doesn't say my meat is to gather a large crowd. He doesn't even say my meat is to win people to myself. He says my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He said the thing that sustains me is is not the, the product of my work. Rather, it's the precedent of my work, the premise of it. It's not the fruit of my work. It's the focus and foundation of it. The thing that keeps me going is that I'm trying to please the Father. And you may not be pleased with it. And other people may not be pleased with it. And I may not even see the the tangible, visible return on it. But if I know He is pleased, if I know that I am doing what He's asked, that's enough for me. Paul says that's the kind of spirituality that I want you to have. Man, we ought to be striving for more. I ought to be striving for more. I ain't just preaching at you. I'm preaching at me before I'm ever preaching at you. And we ought to be striving for more. You say, preacher, I've arrived. No, you haven't. And if you say it, it just betrays that you've not. You ain't where Paul's at, neither am I. And Paul said, I ain't arrived. <laughs> I ain't even got as far down the road that he was. And he said, where I'm at, boys, we ain't even close to the end. So if he's not arrived, we've not arrived. So the question is, are we pressing forward and striving to do more. Let's bow our heads tonight as a musician comes to play. Uh, I want us to have an invitation. I want you to feel liberty to deal with the Lord tonight. He may have spoken to your heart. I hope He did. Uh, because there's really not a one of us here that God can't speak to about this very issue. And so if He spoke to you, uh, if He dealt with you about something, why don't you deal with Him tonight and let Him have His will in His way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name. With our heads bowed.